Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me on the show today. Now, after the shock and discussion and further uncertainty resulting from our our last episode on the budget changes, um, I thought I'd discuss something a little bit different today. Let's talk about valuing our time and what I like to call the poor, uh, poor man's thinking. So let's get right into the heart of the matter with Property Chatter. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. So this musing comes about as a result of a a recent debate I became involved with when a self-managing landlord started to question whether they could take on any more tasks in their portfolio and if not, how to decide which tasks to give to someone else to do instead. Now this of course raises another debate, the landlord versus investor debate that is, which we've referred to in series one of the podcast and particularly around the issue of lettings and management if you remember. And perhaps one way of defining each perspective could be this, a landlord might get paid money in return for their time, whereas an investor receives a return on their time instead. Now, there's a subtle and yet distinct difference, notably leverage. An investor can effectively create more time that a landlord cannot, beyond the standard 24 hours in a day anyway. So we, we could in fact substitute the word time in that uh, in this illustration I've just mentioned. Uh, we could substitute the word time for ideas, money, skills and so on to de- derive the same difference because we are talking about leveraging here as being the key difference. It's the point I'm trying to make in any case. And isn't this a little bit, you know, like the difference between being an employee and being a business owner or entrepreneur? And if it is, is property investing more like an employment activity or more like a business activity? Now, I think you probably understand where I'm coming from with posing these questions in this way. But I, and I know it can be a controversial topic, so um, I just wanted to use that as an illustration to frame the topic in uh, in some in some way. Now, personally speaking, as I'm probably I'm, you know, I'm probably convinced by now that you are, you're aware, I'm firmly in the investor camp, as I I have decided that my personal time and location independence is very important to me. Uh, others though will say that do as many tasks as possible and retain all of the revenue for yourself. However, even if we do go down the self-management or landlording route, at some stage we're going to reach a tipping point due, if nothing else, to just not having enough hours in the day. And so this discussion can help both at the outset when deciding how to value and use our time, maybe playing the landlord versus investor argument at that stage, but equally it can help later on when perhaps we start to realise that we, we maybe have less and less free time available anymore and then we maybe want to take stock and have a look at things in a different way. The concept that started my my thought process here centered on the relationship between time and money and it's easy to fall into the trap here I think. The belief that our time comes for free and that there can only be an upside 
if we either make or save money by giving up some of our free time to do so. Equally, it's, it's not unlimited in amount, as we each get the standard 24 hours a day, unless some of you have invented a time machine or something like that, of course. I mean, compared to watching Game of Thrones or Big Brother say, surely the idea of earning an extra £25 for an hour of our time has got to be a bit of a no-brainer, right? Aha, now some of you are thinking, these Game of Thrones fans at least, I'm not so, so sure anymore. £25 or watch Game of Thrones? Mm, not really sure. And, and I guess what I'm doing there is I'm just kind of hinting at, uh, at what's going to come up in the discussion a little bit further on. So, so stick with it. I don't want to get a little, you know, too far ahead of myself. Uh, I just wanted to set the, the outline of the discussion first, if you like. So if we consider valuing our time and then deciding how to spend it, there's a, there's a few factors I, I wanted to go through for the course of this discussion. Uh, so let's set those out for, for us right now. And some of these are, are these factors or methods, if you like, are, are more mechanical or, fun, or formulaic, if you like, and some of them are not. So I've broken them down to those two sections. So starting with the more mechanical or formulaic factors, which could influence our decision, uh, I'm going to go through some of the these following topics. And uh, the first one will be our equivalent or required hourly rate. Next one will be opportunity cost, followed by return on time invested, or ROTI for short. Uh, probably won't forget that. Uh, marginal income. And then having a quick look at the after-tax adjustment position. <laughs> so um, before we look too far into these concepts, let's introduce another one. The concept of what I like to call poor man's thinking. And I guess the simplest way uh, that I can use to describe poor man's thinking is to realize that when we, we might be seeing expenditure as a, as a cost or as an investment, now, with poor man's thinking, we'd see expenditure as a cost. But an, inv an investment really should, by definition, create more value than it costs to generate. So uh, that would be the opposite, of course, uh, of poor man's thinking, uh, investment thinking. Now, value here could be financial. It could be non-financial. And, of course, non-financial uh, benefit could be time. So we're really starting to look more closely at valuing time and seeing it more as an investment rather than uh, a cost or even just neutral, just nothing. And this will start to make more sense as we go. But for now, just keep it in mind, this idea of poor man's thinking, or if you prefer, too much reliance on expenditure as a cost rather than potentially as an investment. And I'll return to the concept you know, a little bit later during the course of the discussion. So when we're looking at placing a value on our time to undertake a task or a job in our property business, such as, say, finding a tenant or doing some painting and decorating, undertaking repairs and that sort of thing, we should start by considering our um, equivalent hourly rate or, if you like, our required hourly rate. And I'll make the distinction there uh, for a good reason. So how much is our equivalent or required hourly rate? Well, to illustrate, if we had a salary of £25,000 a year, that's roughly equivalent to £15 an hour or £105 a day. And that's, that's assuming a 35-hour work week and, and with five weeks off, including bank holidays. So if you want to do the maths and check me out, that's how I arrived at that figure. However, if we already have a full-time job, we could argue that this uh, hourly rate should be at a premium because it is our personal time or overtime uh, after all. Uh, 
And do you remember the the idea of time and a half or even double time that used to exist? I'm not sure it's uh, so commonplace anymore, but it certainly used to exist for working weekends and public holidays. So you could argue that there should be a premium even attached to uh, to our equivalent hourly rate, and that's why I talk. That's one of the reasons why I talk about a required hourly rate. And we should not forget to add in travel time and administration time, and, and you know, into the total job cost uh, because. Um, you know, that's obviously going to play a part as well in, in, in calculating the, the cost of a job that we might choose to do. Now, it might seem obvious to use our current salary, assuming that we're employed, uh, as a starting point here. And that's, that's fair enough. We could, we could start there. But we could also look to take our desired salary instead and, you know, think downstream because, you know, are we satisfied with our current salary? Do we merely want to replace that through property investing or do we want to increase our overall earnings? And um, a lot of people that I speak to, um, they're, they're looking for targets in the region of um, 3,000, 5,000 or even 10,000 pounds a month income from property investing. Now, 25,000 pounds a year or 55,000 pounds a year is roughly equivalent to a 15 pounds or 30 pounds per hour equivalent um, uh, rate. But based on these figures of 3,000, 5,000 or 10,000 pounds per month, that would be equivalent to 22, 36 or even 72 pounds an hour based on a salary equivalent basis. Now, if we were to factor in higher tax rates at that higher level, or one of those higher levels, uh, plus some travel time, some admin time, uh, some extra time off or downtime for other reasons, then we could easily uh, increase these sums even further. But I'm not going to do that now. I'm just really illustrating the point. So once we've identified our required hourly rate, now I've changed the emphasis, not effective hourly rate, our required hourly rate, then we can make a simple decision when presented with the task. And the simple decision answers the question, is this worth my time? Alternatively, what we could do instead is set up a rule. And the rule might say something like, I will outsource all tasks that cost me less to outsource than my required hourly rate for, you know, for doing the work myself. Or, or, or variations, if you like, to that effect. So I'm really just trying to set up some decision-making processes here to, to help guide us going forward. Now, before I move on, keep in mind what I said about poor man's thinking again. And for the time being, please do resist the temptation to shout out uh, that it's only going to cost me money if I give the job to someone else, Richard. So, you know, hear me out here, hold fire, and I'm going to explain. Okay. (laughs) So the next concept to consider is that of opportunity cost. Now, opportunity cost is a bit of an economic term, but in layman's language, it basically says that um, there is a price to pay as a result of taking an alternative course of action. A price of doing something or not doing something, if you like. Now, that price, it could be financial or it could be non-financial. And for the purposes of this discussion, I'm going to just assume right now that that's going to be a non-financial cost. So a good example might be something like friends with, uh, sorry, friends, time with family and friends. Um, and, and to illustrate, and I've had this situation, if we were to get a call on a Friday evening from a tenant who says that they need a light bulb changing, yes, I have had that call, then there is an opportunity cost of going out to do the job. Of course, we could pay someone to do the job, we could do it ourselves, but the opportunity cost, which is the point I'm trying to illustrate right now, is that maybe we're going to have to give up movie night with the family, which is maybe what we're planning to do on a Friday night instead. That's the illustration of opportunity cost. So it's a, it's a concept that's going to help us decide 
Uh, and again, we could devise some more rules here so that we don't get caught out in that situation. And uh, it could be, I'm never going to work on a Sunday. Or it could say, I'm never going to work on a weekend. Or uh, an alternative could be, I will only work a maximum of two or three nights a week. That sort of thing. So if, we say, if we're aware of the opportunity cost, and our family are probably going to remind us that this maybe a little bit too far down the line to, to do anything about it. So let's let's think about it in advance. You know, we do well to set some of these rules up to prevent that problem happening in the first place. Now, the next one I want to talk about is this one called ROTI, or Return on Time Invested. ROTI for short. And it's not a flatbread. <laughs> it's a kind of a hybrid, if you like, between the first two items that I've already been through. So uh, our required hourly rate and the opportunity cost. Now with ROTI, I look at my effective financial return per hour I spend investing versus doing. So for example, if I know I can produce, for example, a 10k return on a project that involves my personal engagement as an investor, rather than say as a doer with some painting and decorating, then for 10 hours I know that my effective ROTI, return on time invested, in that example was a thousand pounds per hour. That was the 10,000 return divided by 10 hours on that project. Now clearly it'd be a challenge then to accept undertaking uh, works, uh, painting and decorating at only say £15 an hour. I mean maybe we'll do a few days painting and decorating so it's going to add up to a few hundred pounds but it's not going to add up to the 10000 or you know or the £1,000 an hour for sure. And this is how if you like we combine the required hourly rate with the opportunity cost concepts under this general banner of ROTI so it's quite a good one to have in its own right. And, and therefore, what I'd look to do is spend more time, more of my time, on higher roti tasks, such as finding suitable properties that I can make a return on investment on, as opposed to lower roti tasks, such as changing light bulbs on a Friday night, for example. I think you got the idea. So the next concept, really, we could look at is, I guess I'm calling it marginal income method, the marginal, marginal income method. And it's kind of borrowed from accounting, this kind of phrase. And it's, um, it's basically where we already have our basic lifestyle expenses covered from our regular activities. That could be the day job, it could be existing investments and that kind of thing. But once we've got the baseline of expenses covered, the mortgage, the grocery bill, etc., what we might, you know, then decide to do is take on some additional work if we're presented with the opportunity. So, for example, the painting and decorating example that I gave just now, it might be, it might be 150 pounds to, to, you know, paint a couple of rooms. And uh, we may decide to do that ourselves. And to illustrate what I mean by this marginal uh, marginal income method. Uh, another word for it could be dream costing, which is uh, the, the phrase that Tim Ferriss uses in his book, The 4-Hour Workweek. And um, what we could decide then is, is yeah, we're going to take on a job which will save us £150 or indeed earn us £150. Um, and, and in that way, we can actually fund some lifestyle expenses. For example, taking the other half out for a slap-up meal. So that's what I mean. We can then take a decision that normally we won't do those things. But if we've got an extra expense this month, a birthday or, you know, this, this meal that I mentioned, we can then take on additional work and uh, or, or, or avoid paying somebody else for that work, which would then fund that dream cost or that um, extra income, if you like. 
But of course, the challenge with this idea is that we don't know when to stop, do we? We don't know when to draw the line. You know, there's oh, there's always an extra job and we can either earn some money or save some money. So we just keep doing it. We keep doing it. We keep doing it. And of course, time is not unlimited. And um, time is also precious. And, you know, I'm sure we want to spend it in better ways. So we have to learn how we draw the line. Um, so, you know, so we don't fall into the trap of just chasing the next pound. Um, but so what I suggest we do is we can set a limit, a financial limit of what our dream costing is for maybe any given month or any given year. And once we, once we've achieved that limit in terms of cost saving or additional income, then we don't do anything else ourselves and we merely delegate to someone else. Now, before I move off the, uh, the mechanical or more financial factors that I've been re- relaying right now, one quick word on taxation and, uh, and, the, and how this can play a part as well. And it might be a difficult concept to get over in, a, in an audio, but just think of it this way. If we earn money, then, you know, generally speaking, we need to gross it up to account for any taxation that we have to pay. So, for example, if we wanted to earn £15 an hour, was it before tax or after tax? Now, if it's, if it's after tax, then we need to gross up the £15 an hour to account for the taxation that we'd have to pay to be left with £15 an hour after tax. So this, this, this rate of 15 would have to be grossed up to say 20 pounds or even 25 pounds, depending on our tax rate. Now, to flip the coin around the other way, if we were to pay somebody else to undertake a task for us to do, then if that same 15 pounds an hour was the charge that we'd have to pay someone else, it's not really going to be worth 15 pounds to us when we take the after tax position into consideration. And what I mean by that is if, if we then deduct the taxation that we would not then have to pay ourselves, that £15 an hour is going to drop to something like £11 an hour or even less if we're a higher rate taxpayer. So it is a bit of a difficult concept to get over in the podcast. But what I really, I guess I'm, I'm pointing out is that in, you know, we don't uh, we don't retain one pound for every um, pound that we earn, and nor do we just say uh, save one pound for every pound that we say um, spend. Rather, we actually you know we can save more money, or you know we don't pay as much money out is the is the equivalent when we actually pay someone else to do work. So that that's maybe a difficult part of the concept to to explain here. And I'm not sure if I've done the best job of it, but um, you know if if you just pause with me on go and just keep that in mind, um, that's probably the best thing I can suggest. Now, there are some other factors. I've talked about these financial or mechanical ones, and there are some other factors that could influence our decision in terms of how we spend our time. And uh, the first one, I guess, is lifestyle choice and preference. And for some people, I have to say that certain tasks just don't feel like work at all. They just love doing it. And so, for example, this could be dealing with people or it could be mowing a lawn. Um, you know, not, I'm not necessarily into the mowing a lawn uh, side of things, but I do like dealing with people. So for me, it's not really work. Maybe mowing the lawn is. So, uh, that I'd be more inclined to give up mowing the lawn than I would dealing with the people is my point. Um, so we could go through all the, all the tasks on our task list and decide, you know, which ones we, we don't consider work or we, or which ones we, we really enjoy. And equally related to the opportunity cost idea that I referred to earlier, what about location preferences? What about holiday time and other things like this? And one thing that we could do to help us decide how we use our time could be to rank the tasks that we've got. And then obviously it's just to focus on the ones we like the best and then try and give away the ones we like the least. So again, what I'm trying to do here is come up with some rules of how we can value time and then how we can make decisions of how to apply our time. 
Now apart from those sort of lifestyle choices, there are some other factors that can come into play and can influence our decision. So for example, geography, general heading, geography. Now where we live versus where our investments are would be an obvious illustration of this. And um, this, this affects not only our personal time, but also the response times for tenants. So obviously, if we have to jump in the car and drive 100 miles or so to visit the property, uh, if there's a water leak, I mean, we wouldn't do it that, I'm sure, but just giving an example. And certainly, if the heating was down and we went up to try and fix it ourselves, now it's going to take a couple of hours to get there. And so that's not really in the tenant's best interest, is it? But a different spin on the whole idea of geography again comes from Tim Ferriss's uh, book, this idea of geo-arbitrage. And um, in the four-hour work week, what he talks about is trading off lower cost economies for, you know, earning in higher cost economies and paying for goods and services in lower cost economies. So to illustrate the point here, um, London rates versus Grimsby rates, for example. And literally, I have seen and uh, been involved with projects where teams have travelled to London to undertake refurbishment works from Grimsby, Portugal, Poland and other places as well, because the cost of labour is lower in those places. So even when they take account of the, uh, the travel time and the extra accommodation costs, it can work out less expensive to bring people in from alternative uh, places and locations. So just keep that in mind when we're looking to buy and, and those sorts of projects uh, to use this idea of geo-arbitrage. And similarly, that we talked about more trades, um, you know, uh, expenditure in that case. But uh, similarly with administration, there are now obviously global outsourcing, um, you know, places we can go to now like Elance and Upwork and, and those sorts of sites. And that allows us to leverage lower cost economies to deliver administration work at a fraction of the cost of doing it in the UK. Another factor that comes into play, I guess I'm calling expertise. So this is really our skills and competencies and capabilities. Or another way of looking at it could be to say strengths and weaknesses. And this could also help us to decide how and when to use our time or not. And what I have to say is that sometimes actually the worst culprits for doing too much are those that know how to do lots of things. That might be ringing a bell with one or two of you. I know a few people this describes perfectly. They know so much about so many things. They end up doing everything themselves, but they're just really, really busy all the time. Um, and, you know, I just like to have a different perspective on life to that. And so remember ROTI, return on time invested, opportunity cost, and our required hourly rates. This should come into play here, especially if this resonates with us that, you know, um, we're not actually jack of all trades. We're expert in all trades and we try and do everything ourselves. The next area that could have a bearing is what I call capacity. That's very obvious. There's only a limited number of hours in the day for each and every one of us. We all start with the same 24 and we all run it down to zero by the end of the day. But who says we should be working for 7 to 10 of those 24 hours anyway? It's just a bit of a mindset shift there that we might want to have. The next area that may come into play is quality. Now, really, I, I've seen some horrible, <laughs> some really horrible botched DIY jobs. And, you know, when you've got a botched DIY job, it only really points to, well, it points to a few things, but significantly as a property investor, it points to redu reduce selling prices and valuations. Now, of course, if it's us who's done the DIY and it's us who's selling or reliant on a new valuation, then it's a completely false economy. 
Uh, on the other hand, if it's somebody else um, who's done the botched DIY and we're looking to buy, then it just, you know, it's an opportunity for a discount, isn't it? So keep that in mind. And if we don't get negotiated a discount, we're going to have to pick up the price later on to put right the botched DIY when we get into the property. So it is definitely worth keeping in mind. And and what I used to do, I used to work in uh, an engineering and service environment and um, the service guys there were always talking about, the service managers in particular actually, was having this emphasis on first time fix. And so to illustrate, if a job took say two hours typically to undertake and there was say 30 minutes travel time each way, then that job on a first time fix would take three hours. But if it took a second time to fix, that would double to six hours. And if there was a third visit required, it would actually triple to nine hours. So getting it right first time or quality, if you like, uh, plays a part there. So what does it all mean? I guess, I guess it, it, you know, it's not as simple as saying, I'll make more money by doing things myself guess that's where I'm really going with this. And that there's always a price to pay for everything we do or everything we don't do. And sometimes that price will be a financial one. Other times though, it could be an emotional one, it could be a lifestyle one, it could be a social one, etc. So it doesn't always have to be a financial price. There's always a price to pay. There's always a consequence, if you like. There's always something we have to give up to get something and vice versa. So the key, really, what I'm talking about is just to step back um, before we plow into doing everything ourselves and just to make a more rational judgment from the outset about how we value our time and what things we're going to get involved with, particularly if we're wearing this investor hat that I was referring to earlier. Now equally, if we've been at this for a while, and I do accept that there are a number, a significant number of uh, investors who adopt this more hands-on landlord approach. And, you know, well, I'm not going to pay a letting agent. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to keep more profit. But then they're going to give up more time. I understand, you know, that's a, a way of life, actually, for a number of people. But now and again, I think we should stop and just take stock of the situation. Because, you know, I, I, I actually knew a letting agent who was managing 100 properties. And he was just, like, non-stop. <laughs> he was phone was ringing all the time. He was dealing with things all the time. He just never got a moment's peace. So, you know, this this can creep up on us is what I'm really saying. So this this is a useful exercise, you know, in its own right. And whether you agree with me or not, whether, you know, I, I have this view as an investor and I try and actually outsource as much as possible, I do appreciate that other people have a different um, point of view. But still, take stock now and again, review the situation, and probably a good time to do that is maybe every year when we're reviewing our goals, and part of that process is what I would suggest. So in conclusion, if we if we wanted to top up our earnings, or even if we wanted to replace a, a modest income by investing in property, then I dare say many will be tempted to do the DIY approach as much as possible. However, if we have a more, more of a business or investor mindset, then maybe we'll take a leaf out of the books of the best business people who realize the great power of leverage. And leverage can apply to time, money, skills, knowledge, contacts, and so on. Everything can be outsourced. And there's a compounding or a multiplier effect in leveraging other people in our business. And certainly, if we've got larger ambitions, it will be absolutely essential to get our heads around this concept at some point and apply it sooner or later. 
Now we don't want to be busy fools now, do we? And uh, equally, one of my favourite sayings is, those that know how usually end up working for those that know why. I'll say it again, those that know how usually end up working for those that know why. Now this is usually applied in a business or entrepreneurial context, but I think you're getting the point right now that where I'm really coming from is seeing property investment as a business and therefore this concept really does apply. So it's maybe something just worth dwelling on a little bit. Now, I hope you found this Musings episode uh, enjoyable, and if nothing else, it's a, a little bit of respite from all that talk of, uh, of budgets and, and clamping down on landlords of late, isn't it? So um, it all goes in the same general direction, however, and that's about being more professional and businesslike in our approach. And if we are, we're going to improve the results of our investment property business uh, and also our day-to-day -day lives as well and have a, a much better sort of work-life balance. And uh, I'm sure that's something we'd all welcome. As usual, the show notes are going to be available at the website, which is uh, thepropertyvoice.net slash podcast. And uh, meanwhile, thank you very much for listening. I really do appreciate uh, you tuning in, especially during this uh, Musings mini-series. You're not sure what you're going to get, I'm sure. But until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.